Hello and welcome to the HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host, Annabelle Collins, and I'm joined by James Illman and Dave West. Since before Christmas, healthcare leaders have been expecting the publication of the elective recovery plan, a crucial piece of strategic guidance that will help them plan elective work for the months ahead. It was, of course, delayed by, by the Omicron wave, and we understand it could now be on the way imminently. I'll be talking to James more about this and the politics surrounding the plan. We'll also talk about the Health Secretary's announcement in the Times this week about Academy-style trusts and what this could actually mean in practice. So, first of all, um, James, you've been, um, well, you've written um, a piece this week about the elective plan. I think it would be really helpful, first of all, just to kind of recap what it is and why it's so significant um, for listeners. Yeah, sure. So, um, obviously, recovering the elective backlog is is the strategic challenge for the NHS over the next coming years, possibly the next decade. So um, Health Secretary Savage Javid told MPs on the Health Select Committee in November there was going to be a new government elective recovery plan and this would, uh, he said it would come within a month, would set out how um, ministers want the NHS to address the backlog and the kind of support um, uh, carrot and sticks that will be provided. Um, So originally the plan was supposed to be published alongside the NHS's 2022-23 planning guidance, um, which always drops uh, perilously close to Christmas. Um, And for anyone who's still in the HSJ office at that time, um, often means quite a scramble just before the festive break, um, as it was this year, which um, it landed on Christmas Eve, um, which Dave ended up doing quite a lot of work on. Um, so the it was due to drop then, but um, it because of the Omicron surge, and if you remember um, back then, feels like a lifetime ago, but there were all sorts of doomsday scenarios about uh, where the admission peaks would get to. Um, so it was put on the back burner um, for various reasons. One, that the 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 kind of attention just wasn't there. Everyone was head down on the on dealing with Omicron. But also um, NHS providers has always argued that one of the key things in this plan will be sorting out the trajectories of how quickly the NHS um, brings uh, the backlog back down to um, whatever is deemed a sustainable figure. Um, and uh, Chris Hobson, NHS Providers Chief Exec, has long kind of argued, well, we can't do that until we know what the aftermath of Omicron looks like, until we know how much capacity has been uh, lost and we know the, the kind of position post-Omicron. Um, so, um, yeah, it's very much been... Um, the 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 Omicron surge sort of held things up. Anyway, so I came back after the festive break and speaking to uh, a well-connected um, senior NHS figure and they said, ah, oh, as soon as the, the dust has settled a bit on Omicron, we'll get the elective plan out. Um, and then didn't hear anything for a few days. And then last Sunday, uh, the Sunday papers were being briefed that um, the elective plan would come out and it, it it appeared it was going to be dragged into the whole 
um, what was dubbed Operation Red Meat, which is this kind of slew of announcements that the government's been putting out to try and distract the media and the public um, from the whole Partygate scandal and trying to, yeah, get the attention back onto uh, what the government can do rather than, yeah, this, um, the the various parties at Downing Street and elsewhere, which um, have rightly been taking up a lot of time. And the the idea that this really sort of significant NHS plan was going to be used as part of a political stunt, um, you know, un un understandably didn't go down very well with a lot of senior trust figures. I mean, some people I spoke to are quite pragmatic. They were like, well, if it gets it out, then that's a good thing because we need to be cracking on with this. But others were you know, rightly quite horrifying that this, this, this is not the proper way um, to make um, good evidence-based health mm -hmm. policy by rushing out a plan um, mm -hmm. in order to save Boris Johnson's skin. So um, there was, yeah, a bit of a kind of, uh, there was some disquiet about that, but it seems anyway that ministers have called in the last couple of days on, on bringing out something this week or I, I understand it's not well as of when I was speaking to people yesterday so Wednesday uh, we're recording Thursday this is obviously going out on Friday uh, the plan wasn't on number 10's media planning grid uh, and uh, which is where all the um, uh, government announcements gets housed before their great unveiling um either for this week or for the sunday papers so but it, either way if it doesn't drop this week it it'll it'll be coming out soon enough um and um yeah i mean one one thing one one of the reasons why we realized it wasn't going to drop this week was in part because Sajid javid uh ended up making uh, a bit of a splash in in the times uh talking about academy style hospitals yes uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll and, come on to um, that in more, in more detail yeah. in a minute for sure um but james i just wanted to ask you about the plan in terms of what um healthcare leaders can get on with without the plan is it you know how yeah how much of it can they do or is actually quite a large proportion of it waiting for this this guidance no, I mean, there's there's plenty to be cracking on with. So I've sort of the people I've been speaking to are in three sort of broadly three camps. There's there's one who are like we need to get this plan out because we we need to be we mm. need to know the bigger picture. Um, there's another bunch who are like, well, we've got the planning guidance for 2022, 23, and frankly, there's enough to be getting on in there um, in terms of the planning for that. Um, mm. And then there's a, a kind of third group who are still head down in Omicron, so just don't really have the um, uh, the capacity for any of it. But I, I think what was quite quite interesting um, this week was, you know, the whole thing became overtly political, and um, I, I had a chat with Richard Sloggett, who mm. um, was a former uh, special advisor um to matt hancock and he's been in and around the health policy world uh, very well wired into the um um mm. the, the the political aspects and we were discussing what ministers wanted to get out of the plan you know we all want the nhs has been trying to get long weights down um yeah before mm. now it doesn't need a government plan to tell it to do that but mm. um 
yeah, the, 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 the kind of government angle on this is all very much um, predicated on plotting uh, a route to the next election, uh, which is formally scheduled for May 2024. But mm. obviously, it could be called earlier and who knows in these times but let, let's work on the working assumption of May 2024 for now um, that that they really need to get the long waiters issue sorted um, with enough clearance time before then otherwise uh, the NHS is going to be weaponized uh, to use the jargon by Labour um, uh, during mm. that period. And it seems, you know, from from what um, uh, Richard was saying, what others were telling me, that it, it's the long waiters that, that, that the politicians are most concerned about rather than the overall list size, you know. If so long waiters, James, what, what, how long are we talking? How long are we talking? So we're, we're talking, um, I mean, the, the NHS started for the first time Certainly, since I've been um, covering uh, policy, started publishing figures for two-year waiters, um, and there were, as of uh, the last figures, which were for November, um, around eighteen thousand six hundred people who um, who have been waiting over two years for mm. operations. But there are now mm. also hundreds of thousands of patients, I think it's about 300,000, waiting um, over a year. Um, and again, the, the 52 year waiters, that pre-COVID was um, down in the the sort of, um, yeah, around 1600 or something. And that, that was considered a bad position. And now we're talking hundreds of thousands of waiters. So yeah, it's the 52 waiters, but uh, first of all, let's deal with the 104 week breaches, the two year waiters, and then 78 and then 52. But they, you know, politically, uh, they do not want to have hundreds of thousands of people having waited um, over a year for operations come, mm -hmm. um, yeah, come May 2024. And, and, you know, for them, they would want that cleared before that. And, West Streeting, Labour Shadow Health Secretary has really started to major on comparing what happened to waiting lists under this government, uh, which is they have mushrooms spiralled out of control completely compared to what happened under waiting lists under when Labour was last in power, when of course um, the four-hour target was introduced, mm -hmm. the 18-week referral to treatment target on the um, uh, elective side was introduced and, um, you know, things got uh, long lists got brought down again. There were all sorts of problems of two year waiters plus in the 90s that that, that all got, yeah, um, put back into uh, a much more manageable position. Um, and um, yeah, so that's that is the threat. And um, it's um, it, it, it's one that ministers are understandably very keen to neutralise. Um, yeah. Do you think the plan, you know, this sort of, um, <clears throat> I suppose, James, the kind of, you know, what is the significance of doing the plan at the wrong time? It does because it, it's, you know, people often point out to us and the NHS produces a lot of plans and like, well, it's not really going to fix the problem anyway, is it? It's sort of issuing a plan. Um, do you think that the plan will actually play any useful function? And, and if so, you know, what is the right time to do it? Yeah, I think um, in terms of what, uh, 
trust bosses are most agitated about it, it it's being committed to something to a target where they don't know if it's even possible and we've seen over the last few years the nhs be set various targets and missed them by miles and there is a credibility problem now certainly um the treasury are are you know um they don't 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 take much in terms of what the NHS says seriously in terms of how it's going to hit its targets because it, it just has kept on missing them. So NHS leaders don't want another massive target that can't get hit. And that won't be very helpful for ministers either, because if, if they set a big target and it doesn't get hit, then you know that's that's something else for Labour to um that's another stick for Labour to beat them with. So um in terms of will it be actually helpful uh good question there's there's some there are some aspects in terms of going back to the kind of nitty-gritty of the policy we sort of talked about the politics um there are things like jim mackey who is uh heading up the um uh elective recovery program from the NHS England point of view has talked about industrialising um, uh, patient initiated follow ups, for example. Um, and there's a lot which needs to be done on outpatients, which again, hopefully having a plan will concentrate minds and allow. Um, yeah, um, more kind of uh, attention and focus on on reforms that have long been needed in uh, terms of cutting the number of uh, outpatient appointments, which then frees up staff to be doing uh, other work. So there's a lot of good stuff that needs to be done. Question, could that have been achieved inside the kind of envelope of planning guidance, et cetera, et cetera? Quite possibly it could have done, but certainly those at the top of the shop want this plan out there so that people know what to focus on not just for 2023 but get told look here's the roadmap of where we're going here's what you need to be doing we've seen sort of yeah various kind of policy initiatives rolled out recently because of covid that we know will continue um going forward to to kind of get more traction i'm thinking about virtual wards for example to free up bed base um that that's something that's been accelerated under covid so yeah i i do think this plan can play a useful part could it have been done um yeah within the envelope of of the usual nhs planning documents possibly it could have done will the fact it gets you know a political spin on it help no probably not but um i think that's yeah, I think most people who are pragmatic are like, well, if it if it pushes forward some of the reform that has needed to have happened for a very long time anyway, mm. then then good. Last quick cue on the plan, James, but I was just wondering, mm. do you think it's an association with Operation Red Meat and the whole, you know, the, the rushing things out um, to sort of distract could could take away some kind of credibility from it? Could people take it less seriously um. or do you think? It was already written, perhaps. Anyway, it was yeah. All the in in terms of most of the sort of nitty gritty policy stuff is there. It's all been done. It's just mm -hmm. waiting to go. In terms of the targets and the trajectories that the NHS gets set, um, that 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 I think is the sort of thing that 
you know um as as Chris Hobson said if we, if, if we rush out the plan we're not we're going to be committing to targets when we don't know um the lie of the land and that's not going to be helpful but in general terms you know this uh absolutely sort of crazed media environment at the moment will die down um mm. it always does and the plan will still be there and i i you know whether it comes out this week or next week in it in a year's time I, I i don't think anyone will pay too much attention to that and hopefully you know the plan will be something that can um help um yeah with the whole mm. recovery operation but um yeah the politics isn't helpful but at the same time is it going to trash the entire credibility of the plan though no, i don't i don't think it will and i think the plan has got kind of buy-in from senior people at nhs england mm. uh, people like chris uh, yeah um, nhs providers nhs confed they are all they're all on board with it um are the are you know obviously they're not going to be on board if 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 there's ludicrous trajectory set that the nhs mm. won't be able to hit but mm. um, in terms of the principles around pifu patient initia, initiated follow-up and the work around outpatients and just pushing various reforms that's there there is a consensus among all parties that something is needed of a sort of more mid-term strategic um document and if this provides that then um great thanks very much james and of course uh, full coverage on the plan when it is published on the hsj website always um, always, always <laughs> first to know um and um as promised we'll also i think now's a good time to um talk about some of the comments made by the health secretary in the times this week around the introduction of i think it was academy style trusts um i think dave bring, bring you in here but what was the gist of, of the comments made and what, what on earth is meant by academy style trusts Sure. Um, probably I don't know to most of that, but I, but I can talk a lot about the issue nonetheless. Um, the um, uh, I think there's sort of a couple of I'll talk about kind of a couple of questions uh, around that, and um, and then some sort of practical bits that that come out of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, Sajid Javid didn't actually hasn't actually made any comments. So the first question I think is is he serious? Is Sajid Javid serious about this thing? Um, you know, um, is it is something that's really gonna happen in a big way and um you know we don't know for sure he hasn't made any sort of on the record comments you know, there's coverage by um in the on the front of the times by um you know very good um journalist who knows health chris smith and and so you know he's not gonna write something if there's he's not being told something pretty clearly but it is it is sort of anonymously brief thing um and fairly thinly you know i think the bits in quotation marks which you've personally kind of look to those what is actually in quotation marks here even if it's from a from an anonymous source and and it's sort of stuff around this term of um reform trust which sounds pretty wacky and i can't believe that will ever sort of hit legislation but you never know um and the other bit um was about um you know wanting to bring in some of the spirit of academy schools but so I think that uh, to, although it's you know it's 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 newish it's very much in in my mind, in the vein of what was being said and what Sajid Javid did to, or, you know, on the record about and, and clearly on the stages about before Christmas about um, the, the work around his messenger review that he thinks some trusts are um, 
there's obviously variation in the performance of different parts of the health service and he is uh, got in his mind that some of that at least is definitely because of this quality of leadership and the way organizations are, are run and that um and the ND's commissioned the uh, Gordon Messenger review to look into this, which is due, you know, sort of sometime soon, although clearly Omicron's a pretty good excuse for having delayed some of that. Um, and so he's he's interested in pursuing reform, as he, he uses the term reform quite a lot. Um, and he's, he, he wants to, the three areas he's talked about for reform were leadership, and that's all about this, you know, what can I do to bring better leadership to some of the poorer performing parts of the health and maybe care system? Um, and secondly, he talked about technology and thirdly about integration. And I think this is sort of in the vein with his with his kind of leadership reform. Um, so I think he's sort of the other sort of is he serious? I think sort of, you know, fairly. However, you know, is is there going to be another piece of legislation about all this? I think that's very unlikely. And, you know, so I don't think it seems unlikely to me that we're going to see a sort of a different version of a foundation trust. Um, called a reform trust or an academy trust or anything like that sort of put into legislation anytime soon you know and to be proven wrong but would he quite like to publish a white paper about it in response to the uh messenger review well that seems pretty um likely once that actually gets done but there's lots of things that could get in the way of it as well aren't there um so um so i think it's sort of a moderate amount of sort of seriousness about getting on with this but he's got lots of other things the, the second um question is that is this a problem if he does want to do it or is it quite a good idea um and um i think obviously it depends exactly what do you actually mean by by doing these things and we're all going on sort of you know two sentences of of, of anonymous source in the times but um i think there's it, it can mean one or both of two things one is you know if you're talking about taking the spirit of academies and you know giving more freedoms to particular uh, to successful trusts that's all very much like foundation trusts um that, that blair uh it were pursued under created and uh, you know a big deal in terms of reform under blair um and as you know many people have sort of wryly pointed out well we do actually still have foundation trust legislation we could just you know go about restart the foundation trust pipeline and uh, and tackle the underperforming organizations that way and the various other mechanisms about um so that's one thing it means does it mean sort of giving greater freedoms to certain successful trusts uh, and i think um, or is it more about getting um getting reasonably successful trusts and good managers and good leaders to to take responsibility for for poor performing trusts you know you can have <laughs> the foundation trust freedoms included a, a whole bunch of things about not having to get sign off for so much stuff being able to keep your own capital um set, uh, being able to keep your own sort of over underspends and spend them on developing buildings or machines or whatever um and uh, you know not having to get so much sign off from up the nhs chain up the nhs uh, hierarchy but what i suspect we might be really talking about here is not so much giving a whole load of other interesting freedoms um as um actually just asking these better performing organizations and better performing chief executives to 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 take over and take more responsibility for some of the poorer performing ones now if if i'm right and that's what they're talking about then um then that is already happening quite extensively. We talked on the, on the, the health check a few times about the uh, the fact that the whole big part of NHS system management um, at the moment has involved trying to get 
chairs and um, chief executives who are doing doing okay, doing quite well to take over more responsibility for their neighbours. Um, you know, there's countless examples going on, and we've had Ben Clover talking about the London situation where where the regional director, who was David Sloman, has really pushed this, particularly sharing chairs. But you know, looking at in my my sort of um, back of a, an envelope calculations says there was about. Um, there's been if you look at the pure numbers of trusts, so how many have merged, I you know, which essentially means they're being taken over or, or merged with a, a more successful neighbor normally or formed into some sort of group under a you know a, a new trust or foundation trust banner. I think there's been about a 15% reduction over the last few years. But then if you also add into that the number who are now run not actually formally merged but are run by the same chair or chief executive i think there's been at least a, re a reduction of at least um 25 percent over the last like five six years or so so that's like one in four trusts you know being taken into some more than one in four trusts being taken into one of these kind of structures um over the last uh over the last five-ish years so it's sort of it's happening and it's a, a policy that's been pretty used so actually it might be quite sensible for someone to to the suspicious thing about it is that it's not being written down anywhere really this is not a sort of declared policy it's just something that that, that people are getting on with the regional directors and things like that are, are getting on with um so maybe it'd be quite sort of honest to actually write it down somewhere um in a in white paper or whatever um but there are other, um, you know, why are people saying some people, you know, the NHS Confederation and I think um, NHS providers to some extent have come out and said, you know, this is this is a they're not very happy about this idea, um, which I think is. Um, uh, I, th I think is about because it appears that in some respects, if it's about giving foundation trusts and particularly good trusts much more freedom to sort of ignore the rest of the system and get on with it, well, that would be jarring with the direction of the main direction of policy at the moment, which is integrated care systems. Let's all work as a system and collaborate and work in favour of kind of population health and a better experience in the in the round rather than you know the the kind of initial foundation trust idea. You know with you are an island this is sort of operating as a successful successful organization in yourself um you know regardless of the the system around you so i think that's yeah. you know and clearly it is it is um uh on um it's going to pay off a few people who are trying to trying to build system relationships and sort of develop the sort of primacy of the system if we're if we're having the secretary state go around talking about making per foundation trust more powerful I also wonder about um, perverse incentives, whether that's been um, raised as a concern. Maybe it's a bit too soon, but I was just thinking earlier this week about mid-staffs and how um, while working, to, the inquiry found that while working to gain foundation foundation trust status um, it had an impact on patient care um, and also kind of the desire to cut costs. I just wondered whether anyone had sort of raised, you know, said that actually there might there might be a negative consequence of, of kind of trying to gain this well i i i mean i don't think that criticism has been made i mean yeah but you mid staffs was kind of the death of the um foundation yeah. trust idea really even though they still exist and are there in law it um it stopped the pipeline pretty mm. much because people a because you know as you say there was a view that that suing the status itself had had caused damage but also just because it became clear blatantly obvious that there was no difference the whole you have to, if you're going to have a, a superior sort of flag 
status of foundation trust, mm. then they have to be better. And quite clearly, Midstaffs itself was obviously had a terrible um, patient care disaster. But there were many others around that time as well. Sort of, I think it was like Colchester at the time, and um, mm, Morgan yeah. Bay, and just a litany of. It just became obviously clear that they weren't superior in any way. As that this was, you know, came as um, after Midstaffs, but you know, after that, the, the contracting. Um, spending growth meant that many foundation trusts were in deficit as well so it was was meaningless but i don't think you know that what is actually being proposed is so thin or at the moment that we would be kind of really headed for anyone's yourself to, to sort of make that criticism i think it's much more likely well I, you know i'm guessing but it seems to me it's much more likely and much more sensible to say to say that we want to do more of things like what um, you know Glenn Burley's organisation South Warwickshire has take been involved in the running of um, Y Valley and George Elliot, which were two troubled small trusts, and actually it's gone pretty well. And Glenn's um, uh, you know commented on on uh, Twitter just you know in response to this thing, saying yeah you know if we get kind of there are there are systems in place for credentialing successful organisations like his to to do more of that sort of thing um and um similar you know david dalton who was at salford and, and has obviously been making the case for that for years about and and you know he does a thing resonating with what uh more with what, what all this idea of freedoms you know thinks that successful organizations there should be more incentive for truly successful organizations um but also you know grouping them together and stuff sometimes it fails sometimes it succeeds there's been no i mean you know let's it would be good if there's some sort of proper evaluation of all these kind of groupings and things actually work wouldn't it I and mean, some seems to me sometimes they are you know pretty pretty good idea and sometimes they're they're not i mean um you know people it's the sort of horses for courses isn't it as as um, stevens occasionally said like <laughs> good good system management is is kind of about doing this in the right way with the right trust not about saying like there's this policy is going to solve everyone's problems uh, but i do think it'd be better to be a bit more open about what they're what they're doing doing with this um, and i do think that there's a there's a danger of sort of overreacting to, to a secretary of state wanting to do any sort of reform or have any sort of policy you know it is it is a democratic we are the nhs is to a degree democratically overseen and run and there is a role for the secretary of state in um pushing along shunting along certain ideas if it sort of comes back to that thing in the first place that like how serious is is he about it is this something where is it's going to be a kind of i want a bill by you know the summer and um and everyone must be doing this and it's going to really actually cause a distraction and knock off the whole agenda of integration which is more important or is he just sort of wanting to give it a little bit of a shunt along and to show that he he has some reform ideas and so on which is you know seems seems fairly uh harmless if it's the latter. Yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, certainly people I spoke to, first of all, seem to see it's more of a kind of kite flying exercise just to um, to see uh, what kind of reaction it got. As, as Dave said at the beginning, it was very much sort of anonymous sources. Uh, and this is quite common with uh, policies, just sort of put them out there. Um, and um, yeah, the other thing was the in integrated care systems aren't even on a statutory footing yet and already you know talking about other massive reforms so um so i i think that's what irked people a bit and we're in the middle of a pandemic it's like well hang on a minute how about we 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 do deal with what's yeah. on the statute book already or or coming through um mm. and then yeah if you want to 
reheat old policies we'll go back to it but um yeah i think i think there was some frustration there as well yeah can i i, if, I know we're uh, probably getting towards the end of our time Annabelle, but can i um uh, ask you to give us an update on the um the kind of very hot topic that is at the front of everyone's minds at the minute which is the mandatory vaccination mm. covid vaccination of, of staff yeah, absolutely. Well, it's just um, almost two weeks away now. So I think um, when I was speaking to people before Christmas, they were thinking about it, but not super stressed. It wasn't their top priority. It was just something they had to get done. But I think now it's like a whole, whole other story. People are, it's kind of the top concern. There have been a flurry of webinars this week held by NHS England, designed at designed it kind of troubleshooting and trying to answer questions. Um, I know um, some trusts have sort of been asked to share best practice in terms of what they're doing to get staff vaccinated. And I think that the, the, the sticking points are really around who is covered by this exactly. Um, like how patient facing do you need to be? Where are you on the clinical pathway? Um, what happens if you're employed by a contractor, not by the trust itself? Um, you know, where do you draw the line? You know, we've heard that trusts are, um, you know, including retail workers who work in shops and parts of the hospital in this. So um, I think there will be a, definitely a trust by trust, slight trust by trust difference as well in terms of how, you know, who they're bringing into this. Interestingly, I have heard from some trusts who are looking at broadening out the, um, broadening out the mandate and they could be looking at staff who are not patients facing, but still haven't been vaccinated to try and make it fairer. Um, so they could be at risk of dismissal as well, even if they you know, can, can work at home. I think there's a real concern about um, you know, how this policy could um, you know, affect some more than others. And yeah. Um, yeah it's brave, isn't it, that going out? I can see why trusts have gone out on their, on their limb as such and said, look, we're just going to apply it to everyone because mm. it's kind of more simple and, you know, you, it avoids those difficult issues of, well, is this particular individual involved? They might be wandering down the corridor and, you know, they may be a, a non-clinical um, uh, admin person, but they might be wandering down the corridor and bump into a patient or well, whatever. Exactly. Um, yeah. But it does avoid those, but also it's going to be make, potentially make their lives a lot more difficult when it comes to sorting out what might only be a group of like 40 people in a in a sort of smallish trust or, or I don't know, even mm. around that number who are actually saying no, you know, if, if you leave yourself option, you could actually work through all those and kind of um, yeah, manage to amend their roles or redeploy them um, to, to kind of just avoid having to make too many horrendous sort of sacking decisions. But um uh so yeah it does kind of you know land themselves potentially in a bit more difficulty mm, absolutely and um you know i think um you know anyone i speak to um is very um quite anyone quite senior i speak to is very sure the february 3rd deadline for the first jab is still in play but then um you know everything feels so up in the air at the moment and you know i've heard that the, the prime minister was very keen to keep this deadline in place but you know goodness knows what's going to happen there so <laughs> we could we could get to february the 3rd and everything could be turned on its head but everyone's just you know working towards it as if it's definitely still in play um you know as they should brilliant thanks no worries and i'm sure we'll be um, touching on this subject um, in another podcast very soon as it is you know is the biggest issue at the moment um, and anyone listening do do get in contact if you have any thoughts on that we'd love to hear them um, and I think we, we have come to the end of the podcast this week so 
Um, just to say, uh, just a reminder, it's available every week on the HSJ website and across all main podcast channels. And if you haven't subscribed, please do and give us a rating too if you've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.